You know, sometimes I wonder when people are new to communities like this, what we look like from the outside. <laughs> One of the things that I reflected on this last few weeks is thinking, boy, we, we pray a lot. <laughs> we pray a lot in our services. And even this morning as I was asking, why do we do such things? I was reminded with the simple truth. The work to which God calls us, this life which we are invited to embody, is not easy. In fact, it's not possible on our own strength. So do we pray a lot? Yeah, we sure do. Do we pray enough? Probably not. Because in prayer, we are reminded that we have a source of strength to fill in the gaps. And for me this morning, there are many, many areas where I need God's strength. I need God's invitation to something that is bigger than myself. And that as I was praying this morning, asking that the Lord would speak through me in the reading of our text, he said these simple words to me. It's not about you. It's about so much more than anything you could ever imagine for yourself. And the moment that I begin to imagine, I'm often led to assume my own needs first, my own desires, that my prayers, if I was honest with myself, are more shaped by the things that are in my purview than anything else. And so this resurrection life that we talk about this morning, but also through these 50 days of Easter and beyond, invites me to a place where I have to honestly say, God, I can't see the whole picture without you. That I can't see the whole picture without others. That I can't hope to see all that you are inviting me to if I don't first and foremost rely on you and your strength. And so all of that I ask us to bring before the Lord this morning. In the reading of his word and the proclamation of his gospel, that the Lord would remind us, it's not about me. So I'm going to invite you to stand one more time this morning as we honor the reading of God's word, and we'll pray this prayer as a body together, and then I'll guide us in our reading of scripture. Guiding God, send your Holy Spirit upon the reading of your word, that it may serve to show us the path of life and lead us into your presence where there is fullness and joy. Reading from Acts chapter 2 in verse 14 and then skipping down to verse 36 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be said to you and listen to what I say. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you. It's for your children. 
and for all who are far away. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and extorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What a story! What a story. But there's days when I leave and I think, you know, his sermon was okay, but I can't imagine 3,000 people being baptized. Stu, I know you've gotten close, about 2,000 maybe is maybe your record, but 3,000. What a year-end report that would be to submit to our district. I'm moved by this story, not because I think the words of Peter are all that profound, which they are better than most, maybe some sermons I've heard before. But I think the power of this story is not so much in the words that Peter says, but in the truth that he points to. That he points to something outside of himself that we can't help but remember. That the one who speaks to this crowd in Jerusalem carries a heavy heart. That it wasn't but a short time before this that Peter once stood in a garden, in a courtyard, and asked if he knew this Messiah who was put on trial and simply said, no. He said, no, I don't know that man. I've never met him. I wouldn't know what to do. And in the moment of immense need, an immense hour where Jesus was inviting people to profess his name, Peter, carrying all of that guilt now, speaks of a Lord who continues to save. And I think this is profound even beyond the words that Peter says. The simple fact that Peter stands there in this moment and says these words to this crowd speaks to something important. It reminds us of people like Peter, of the mistakes that we might too often make in our own discipleship, in our own efforts to follow Jesus where we might fall short. That God has invited Peter to this conversation like everyone else. So when Peter says the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are lost, for all those who are far off, I can't help but think that he probably includes himself in that. That he once was far off. That he once had wandered to a place where in Christ's greatest moment of need, he said, no, I don't know this man. And so if for that, I am grateful this morning. The sermon of Peter stands as a testament and a reminder to me that even in the moments when I feel most far gone, in the moments where I feel that I have not lived up to that which Christ is calling me to, that Christ continues to invite people like Peter. And if he invites people like Peter to the conversation, then maybe, just maybe, he wants people like me to be a part as well. So we journeyed as a church for 40 days through the wilderness, and after our mournful pause at Golgotha, where we remembered the harsh reality of Christ's death, and confessed that it was us who put him there, we finally arrived at the resurrection. And as a church community, we moved from Lent to the season of Easter, this grand 50-day story where we celebrate the empty tomb. 
And we began with the story of his disciples who wandered to the tomb wondering what they would find and found the stone rolled away and ran back as fast as they could to tell others. So the empty tomb remains the focal image for us week to week as we were invited to repent and now receive the forgiveness that is freely offered. This forgiveness, this revolutionary life to which God called early Israel, the church in Acts, and us today, invites us to turn away from all the things that keep us trapped in the power of death. All the things that keep us wrapped in our own grave clothes. All the things that keep us inside the tomb where the stone has already been rolled away. So we revisit Peter's sermon to the people of Jerusalem We cannot help but ask this simple yet powerful question that they ask. Peter, what should we do? I think that for many of us, facing the truth is not an enjoyable experience. There's the truth that hits us someday like a lead brick. Where you wake up and you look in the mirror and you say, I myself wake up and say, man, I I need to take better, better care of myself. Or you wake up and your reality check hits you, recognizing that perhaps you haven't given priority to the things that matter most. The facing the truth is often something we would like to avoid because the truth sometimes hurts. Because the truth requires something of us. The truth invites us not simply to a place of guilt and shame, but invites us to correction. That to face the truth invites us to say, I don't have it all figured out, but I want to move in that direction. And so facing the truth is often the last thing we do. We create alternative realities that don't challenge us. And in our modern age, this is almost done for us without even asking. As online algorithms create echo chambers on the internet, if we're not careful, we can walk away with a skewed perception of what's really going on around us. And it's the world's biggest questions. To this, all we can say is this is why we need one another. Why we need each other's stories one another's grief, one another's pain and brokenness. For in the sharing of these stories, we're pulled out of our individual worlds, these worlds that too often keep us blind from what's really going on around us. We've spoken many a time about the power that stories have to shape us. Ultimately, the stories that we let occupy our minds, whether fictional or historical, shape our perception of ourselves and the sort of world in which we live. But I would add a caveat this morning, that the kind of shaping these stories do is somewhat up to our willingness to let them shape us. Painful memories of our past, when pushed away, ultimately tighten their grip. However, if we choose to face them, We can not only free ourselves from their grip, but we can begin to direct ourselves where to go and how to move forward. Here, Peter reminds the crowd of a powerful story, one that they wanted to forget. First, he says this, this God has made him both Lord and Messiah. I wish the story stopped there, because in these few words, Peter reminds the crowd of Christ's exalted position. That he, by God's power, is both Lord and Messiah. Anointed one and master that would put the world back together again. 
It is in these few words that he would remind the crowd of all the times when Jesus healed the sick, of all the times when Jesus fed the hungry, of all the times when Jesus responded to the need that was right in front of him. But simply put, this part of the story would tell this crowd of the times when Jesus embodied, didn't just talk about a good news, but actually lived it out in his day-to-day actions. But the second part of the story is far less appealing. He says, this Jesus, whom you crucified. A scathing indictment on the crowd, intended to awake them to their own unwillingness to follow where God was calling them. This isn't a new theme for Luke and Acts. Books that were written in tandem with one another. For back in Luke chapter 19, it was noted that Jesus, upon entering Jerusalem, wept over the city. Saying, if even you had only recognized on this day that things were to be made for peace. Jesus' tears are shed over this city of people who have followed God to the letter, yet ultimately have given themselves over to violence. Exclusion. Anything other than peace. Then the crucifixion of Jesus, a climax after years and years of ignorance to the plight of the poor, an embrace of violence, and much more, comes to a close. However, if we're not careful, we can let passages like this allow for an abuse of Jewish communities. We can blame them for their complicity in this story. And while it is true that historically it might have been Jewish communities that crucified Jesus, this in no way absolves us in our modern day of our own responsibility in the story. For it may have been others who put Jesus on the cross, but if I could say to us this morning, we do a good job of keeping him there. For keeping Jesus on the cross comes at times when we deny that the resurrection is real. A denial that goes far deeper than a simple doubt in a historical event. But a denial of Christ's resurrection means to deny the new ways that life can actually transform. To deny the resurrection is the times when we put our eyes blind to the needs around us. Irish philosopher and theologian Peter Rollins, in a confession, admits the following. Without equivocation and hesitation, I fully And completely admit that I deny the resurrection. Oof. Says I deny the resurrection of Christ every time I do not serve at the feet of the oppressed. Each day that I turn my back to the poor. I deny the resurrection when I close my ears to the cries of the downtrodden. And I lend my support to an unjust and corrupt system. However, there are moments, few and far between, when I affirm the resurrection of Jesus. I affirm it when I stand up for those who are forced to live on their knees. I affirm it when I speak for those who have had their tongues torn out. I affirm it when I cry for those who have no more tears to shed. Acts tells us that upon hearing this story, the crowd was cut to the heart. They allowed themselves to hear the story with fresh ears. 
And it revealed something to them that they had perhaps not seen in themselves before. If we approach the story like this, what might it reveal in ourselves that we would rather keep hidden? If we approach the story like this, would it perhaps reveal guilt undealt with, wounds untended, secrets kept behind closed doors? Peter's delivery of this message shows that he too has faced honestly his own culpability in the story as one who in Christ's greatest hour of need denied him. Reading scripture like this is not as natural as we would need. We've been reflecting over the last several weeks of the power of services like our Good Friday service. For those of you that attended, you know that we read the story of Christ's death in its entirety from start to finish, a practice that I fear is too often absent in our own readings of scripture. But as I was sitting there listening to the story read by four of our people this, this last few weeks, I was moved to a point where I remembered that the story, when I allow myself to be shaped by it, has something to say to me. That oftentimes the bite-sized amounts of scripture that we're given, the verses one at a time, the stories taken out of context can do a disservice to the transformation that the story is trying to offer to us. And so Peter's sermon reminds us of the simple power that the story has to transform That even the words that are given to us in scripture today, that I hate to break it to the preachers among us, that it's not the words that we say in the sermon that transform, but the words that we speak to. That the word that is given to us, when given the space in our lives that it deserves, has the power to do something greater than we could ever imagine. Has the power to cut us to the heart in the ways that we need to be made open. It has the power to change us and transform us in the ways that we perhaps don't even realize we need to be changed and transformed. But the passage doesn't end there. For the crowd is moved to ask one of the most honest questions that we can ask in our pursuit of following Jesus. What should we do? This question gives me hope. Because it demonstrates, first, a desperation that this crowd wanted to be changed. They wanted to be transformed. That a crowd that had their own culpability and guilt to deal with had come to a place where they said, God, we want you to change us. But it also shows me that they had a faith to believe that the God that they served, after all of this, had not given up on them. After all that had been done, that the Lord, the Christ who had been made both Lord and Messiah, who was crucified by his own community, abandoned, denied, rejected, after all of those things, this question demonstrates a faith to believe that I need this morning that says God is not done with us yet. That no matter how far gone we might feel, no matter how buried we might feel by the mistakes of our past, by the pain that we still carry, by the sins that we deal with that feel heavy on our hearts this morning, that this question demonstrates from a community that had every right to believe that God was done with them, that God was not. 
And so God says to us this morning, no matter what care we might be carrying, no matter how heavy it might feel, that this season of Easter, as we celebrate the resurrection, does not deny that pain. But it says that the power of the resurrection is strong enough to carry it, strong enough to change it, and strong enough to make us into the kind of people that God wants us to be. There's something powerful about this question. For many of us, our discipleship journey began with an invitation to say a certain prayer. I know mine did. I remember that altar. I remember that chapel. I remember those people that prayed around me. I remember being guided to say certain words and to profess certain beliefs. That was a powerful moment in my own faith journey. And while the words spoken were significant, I lament the fact that much of the way that we talk about discipleship, the act of following Jesus closer every day, doesn't often move beyond this simple profession. We focus our efforts on leading people to say the right things, to simply pray the right prayers and believe the right things. And while all of that is important, the question of the crowd demonstrates what ought not to be ignored. For the community who asks this is deeply religious. They knew the scripture backward and forward and obeyed the commandments and rituals that God had instructed, yet they affirm that something is missing. They affirm that a motto of you are what you think is not enough, but a motto that I fear we too often let guide us. That we're far more interested in saying the right things or thinking the right things or defining success of our own discipleship journey based on all that we know rather than what we do. That at the end of the day, our identity is shaped far more by what we do than what we think. An important affirmation in our journey of discipleship, that God invites us today to face our actions honestly and ask, do the way that I live my life, not simply the things that I say, to the actions that I commit to my, myself to each and every week, profess that this new life, this resurrection, actually matters? What should we do, they ask. Peter tells them to, be re to repent and be baptized. For many of us, repentance isn't something we find comforting. If practiced, often feels more like a speed bump along the way so we can get closer to Jesus. But I was reading this week and I ran across a phrase that I can't escape. Will Williman said this, repentance is a gift. Repentance is a gift. The thought that repentance, the act of abandoning my former behaviors in pursuit of a new self to be a gift, is a revolutionary way to the way I often imagine Jesus. That only through the Spirit that I am even able to see my life for all that it is, both the good and the bad. So in our own invitation to approach Jesus with all that we are, and to repent the things that we perhaps know we shouldn't do. Confess the ways that we have perhaps been unfaithful at times. That even in that, we should remember that there is an affirmation being made 
that it is only through the power of the Spirit that we're even given the eyes to see that which we cannot see on our own. And so in moments when we come to altars like this, I think before we even approach the altar, we can say with gratitude, thank you for even showing me that the altar is needed. Thank you for even showing me that there are things worth confessing. Thank you for revealing to me that there are ways that perhaps I have been unfaithful. Repentance is a gift to us. He also tells them to be baptized, a practice we're familiar with, for we celebrated it just a few weeks ago. As we baptized three of our students that professed a faith in Christ and wanted to be, that to be proclaimed in your presence. But hear this from me today, as we talked with these students to prepare them for baptism, as we do with everybody, baptism is far more about what God does than anything else. The act of going under the water and back up again should remind us of this story, a story where God, who, God who was crucified, was buried, and then rose from the dead again. That in the act of baptism, we reenact this story as a way to remember it, to remember our own culpability in the crucifixion of Christ, but also the promise of resurrection each and every day. Peter closes his sermon by describing the promise of God as this. It is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away. We cannot hear this without remembering the Shema, the prayer that was recorded in Deuteronomy 6 that was and still is central to the prayer life of those who would follow this God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might to keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart and recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. And while this prayer is important, Peter showcases what would become common in the early days of the church. That God's coming into this world through the person of Jesus what was commanded of early Israel is not eradicated, but rather is expanded. That it is expanded to the ends of the earth, for in this promise requires that we see beyond ourselves. That if I was honest, I'd rather read the scripture like this, that the promise is for you. Full stop. But the story doesn't stop there. The promise is for your children. I'm still on board. But in fact, the promise is for all those who are far away. That this life which God imagines for our world doesn't have boundaries, doesn't have edges, doesn't have constraints. But if I was honest, that oftentimes my prayers put these things up in my own efforts to understand. My own fear that the grace really can't be that big. It can't be for those people. They've hurt me too much. They're too far gone. There's no way. But this promise that Peter reminds the community in Jerusalem of, 
as one that has always been envisioned from the beginning of Scripture. For belief in this promise requires us to see beyond ourselves and that we look for God's movement outside of our own faith, our own experience, and our own prayers, and requires us to ask each morning of God, where are you? And where are you headed? Where are you calling me to walk? Peter closes by warning them of a corrupt generation that he advises them to escape from. If we're not careful, this kind of passage can be used to create a distance between us and culture. Can be used to assume that Peter's indictment is of other people. But a better reading of this text would read like this. Save yourselves from yourselves. That the word that is used for corrupt really is translated to understand as evasive. Save yourselves from yourselves as you try to evade, to do everything that you can to escape from where God is calling you to. From all the excuses, all the doubts, all the fears, all the reasons that you might use to justify why we perhaps have lived unfaithful lives. That Peter closes by looking at this community that was more religious than any of us could understand and says to them, don't evade any longer. Don't run away from the calling that God has for you anymore. But says to them in faith that the times when we're invited to the call that God has for us, we can feel overwhelmed. Because this resurrection life isn't just for me, it's not just for you, but it's for all areas that need new life in our world, that I feel really afraid. Afraid because I know I'm not strong enough, because I'm not smart enough, I'm not gifted enough. But it is only through the gift of the Spirit that God gives freely to this community and to all other communities who would continue to follow That says, in the times when you feel tempted to be evasive, the times when you feel tempted to succumb to your own temptations, to your own doubts, to your own incapacity to do that which God calls you to, know that you have been given something outside of yourselves. To live as if this resurrection is real requires me to see Christ as he truly is. A Lord and Messiah who was crucified, who God raised from the dead, and who walks among us with holes in his hands. To remind us both of our own past, but our own invitation to take up our cross and follow him. But the resurrected life to which we are called will create some hurt. It'll feel heavy at times. It asks us to sacrifice our own needs for the needs of those around us. This is the lens through which we look at the world. Christ, in all that he is, both resurrected and crucified, stands there to help us answer the question, what should we do? I'm going to invite the worship team and Pastor Doug to come forward, and we're going to receive the Eucharist this morning. Pastor Doug's going to talk about this more as we come forward to receive. 
But this sacrament reminds us of what it means to faithfully follow in the ways of Jesus. For to faithfully follow in the ways of Jesus is for us to follow where Jesus went. To give up himself, his own needs, wants, and desires for the sake of those around him. To be a part of this way of living, this new exodus, to be people who walk towards a liberated world. Bring themselves, bring their children, and bring every area around them that has been broken to the feet of the cross. Anything less, my friends, is not the kingdom. So I ask myself this morning, and I ask you, what people, places, and relationships in your life need resurrection? What people, relationships, or places need to know that new life is possible? What people, places, relationships around you feel so heavy from the grave clothes that still surround them? That even though the stone is rolled away, don't know how to walk out who around you needs to know that new life is possible. Don't evade the mission that God has given. Don't evade the world to which God is calling us to. But would we boldly approach as we walk to this table this morning, we don't walk alone. We walk with the people that we worship with but we also walk with the Spirit who gives us strength to walk to a table like this that is hard to approach some days. I'm going to invite Pastor Doug to lead us as we receive the Eucharist this morning.